The Mark Stein Show. And now, here's Mark. Over a decade ago, I quoted the words of the French philosopher Alain Finkelkraut. The lofty idea of the war on racism is gradually turning into a hideously false ideology, he said back in 2005. And this anti-racism will be for the 21st century what communism was for the 20th century, a source of violence. He's not wrong, and we are now at that moment. We have reared monsters for whom silence equals violence and violence equals justice. Violence in the cause of tolerance. Absolute soul-crushing conformity in the name of diversity. Racism in the colours of anti-racism. It's all here because everything is, quote, anti-racism now. Just this morning... I was reading a story about AI, artificial intelligence, about emotion recognition technology, uh, which scans your face at airports and the like, to see whether you have the correct facial expression. If you listened to my serialization of 1984, and if you didn't, you should have, you'll know that that's straight out of George Orwell, the state watching you for what it perceives to be facial clues to nonconformity. And yet it's now here, because not enough people read George Orwell to recognise where this thing comes from. Uh, yet it's quite an interesting story, nonetheless, until halfway through, when it settles on the point that the emotion recognition technology doesn't seem quite as accurate when it comes to scanning black and brown faces. So there are a lot of false positives. The person of colour may in fact be wearing the state-approved facial expression, but the ERT reads it as a non-compliant facial expression. And so an up-to-the-minute story is not reported as what it's about, but is instead just the umpteenth iteration of Selma, Alabama, now and forever. Cause everything old is new again. No, 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 you got that the wrong way around, Peter Allen. Everything new is old again. So emotion recognition technology is just Rosa Parks and Jim Crow until the end of time. Meanwhile, back in the real world, where not everything has to be fitted into this dead paradigm, China's first quarter growth is 18.3%. You may have seen that there's an epidemic of Trump-riled white supremacists beating up Asians all over America uh, because Trump referred to the Chinese coronavirus. You can refer to the Indian double mutation of the UK strain of the South African variant of the Brazilian strain, but COVID itself comes from nowhere in particular. We all know that. So Trump has fired up all these QAnon alt-right nutters to beat the crap out of Asians. When you actually Google this story, the only available photographic evidence shows blacks beating the crap out of Asians. But it doesn't matter. It's like colorblind casting in the theatre. It's like Hamilton. For the umpteenth story about white racism, you don't actually need any whites. Uh, it's reverse minstrelsy. Black guys in hoodies playing white supremacists are fine and dandy when it comes to beating up Asians. But Eagle Rock, a suburb of Los Angeles in the once golden state, 
is taking it to the next level. This 70-year-old grandmother named Becky reportedly suffered a brutal beating on a Metro bus because she was mistaken for being Asian. Her eyes were left swollen, her nose broken, her hair pulled out of her head, and she suffered a concussion. The victim's son reportedly says that a female passenger described as black called his mother an anti-Asian slur and then attacked her Friday afternoon in Eagle Rock as his mother was trying to get off the bus to go grocery shopping. And as she was getting up, uh, one of the other passengers called her uh, uh, a name uh, that is usually a, a, a racial epithet that's usually applied to Chinese people. The passenger then allegedly attacked the elderly woman who's not Asian but Mexican-American. And then the person just grabbed her from behind, started beating her up. Um, dragged her from the back of the bus to the front of the bus, uh, tore out some of her hair, uh, blackened her eyes, uh, broke her nose, her leg was badly, uh, badly bruised. The LAPD says the incident occurred around 1.20 Friday afternoon at La Loma and Figueroa. So as part of an epidemic of white supremacists beating up Asians, black women are now beating up Hispanics. Celebrate diversity. That may be the second most stupid racism story of the week. I'm inclined to give first prize to Jeremy Vine. If you don't know who Jeremy Vine is, he's the fellow who took over from Jimmy Young on BBC Radio 2 and made me miss dear old JY in ways I didn't think possible. And with regard to the Duke of Edinburgh's funeral, this was Jeremy Vine's main concern. Made me think of this because your lovely greeting to the many very diverse communities in this brilliant country. We are going to see a group of 30 people who are going to be at this very restricted funeral. And I'm yes. imagining it will be 30 people who are white. I'm just trying to think whether there's anybody of colour in there, and I don't think so. Is that, do you think that's a problem? No, I don't think it's a problem at all. Look, at the end of the day, the royal family are a family. So if someone passes away, you're going to have your most beloved members of your family there. Do you think that's a problem? No, not unless you're nuts. Because of COVID, the funeral's restricted to 30 socially distant mourners. If you scrap the lockdown restrictions, there'd be plenty of people of colour. Governors, general, prime ministers and other persons from Her Majesty's extremely diverse dominions. But 30 mourners makes it essentially a private funeral restricted to fairly immediate family. So Jeremy Vine, one of those particularly pasty pillocks who feels obliged to be extra tiresome at the virtue signalling, appears to be proposing some sort of affirmative action programme for funerals. If he were to be hit by a bus today, what would his own funeral lineup look like, eh? Who thinks like this? Well, half the country. At least in the UK and the US and the British settler nations... And, uh, and in fact, a clear majority of the country under, what now, 30, 40, 50, 60? As you know, uh, I shall miss the Duke of Edinburgh, and I think he is a great loss to the public square because he had, uh, <laughs> as I experienced firsthand, a very finely attuned BS detector, which, incredible as it now seems, once used to be regarded as a rather British quality manifested in His Royal Highness's very dry wit, something else that used to be regarded as rather British, although obviously entirely absent 
in a tosspot like Jeremy Vine. Uh, the Duke, of course, was not in the least bit British, except by inclination. He was as foreign as could be. The son of a seedy, exiled Greek prince who lived what we used to call a fast lifestyle on the French Riviera with the granddaughter of a celebrated prostitute masquerading as a countess. All four of Prince Philip's sisters married Germans. One of them died in an air crash before the war. Uh, the other three were all big-shot supporters of Hitler. One was in the SS, another in the Wehrmacht, the third fought on the Eastern Front. But for six years, serving in the Royal Navy, Prince Philip was at war with all three of his surviving uncles. The man I spent a very agreeable evening with over half a century later was an entirely self-invented Briton. And uh, British in the wider sense, too, able to discourse on the differences between Canadian and Australian federalism as if he were to the empire born, as opposed to being uh, a guy who was uh, smuggled out of Crete in a vegetable crate when he was 18 months old. Uh, the cabbie's uh, soubriquet for his royal highness, Phil the Greek, is funny because he was so un-Greek, which is a testament to how strong enough cultural values can be transmitted even to a guy with a full hand of Nazi uncles. On the one hand, I find that encouraging, and on the other, I've been a little unsettled by both his death and the generally appalling media coverage thereof, including the BBCs, which once knew how to do this sort of thing. Speaking of the deranged Dominion... The Mark Stein Show presents Andrew Lawton's Canadian Content. It's all yours, Andrew. Thank you, Mark. One of the great cultural divides between Americans and Canadians lies in how firearms are viewed. Guns aren't illegal in Canada, but they're highly regulated thanks to a combination of strict licensing and, in the case of a lot of guns, registration and a litany of restrictions on how to store them, transport them, and even when and where you can use them. There's no Second Amendment in Canada, so anyone's gun ownership is a prerogative of Her Majesty's government which can give and take away these freedoms, sorry, privileges, whenever it so chooses. As I mentioned a few weeks back, the Liberal government in Canada under its blackface-in-chief, Justin Trudeau, has availed itself of this prerogative with gusto, banning overnight last summer about 1,500 types of firearms that the Liberals said were only intended to kill people, which was news to folks like me in Canada who had never in a million years used them to kill anyone. And then they introduced further legislation a few months ago targeting more firearms, including toy guns that look like real guns, much like Justin Trudeau who masquerades as a real prime minister. Now, so-called public safety minister Bill Blair, who was a disgrace as Toronto police chief some years ago and now has decided to share his incompetence with the entire country, insisted that the point was never to go after law-abiding gun owners, hunters, sport shooters, ranchers, but in a rare moment of candor at last week's Liberal Party of Canada convention, Bill Blair shared what he actually thinks about Canadian gun owners. You know, we're seeing ideologically motivated, violent extremists who are using online platforms to propagate and, and advocate for hatred and violence against women, against religious minorities, anti-Semitic, Islamophobic, um, and hateful speech and advocating violence. And we can use these red flag laws because I will tell you many of those extremists, they're not every 
person who's in the gun lobby is an extremist, but everybody in the extremist is in the gun lobby. Did you get that? Not all gun owners are extremists. Well, gee, thanks. But all extremists, well, you better believe they are part of the big, evil, mean, scary Canadian gun lobby. By that logic, not all people who do blackface are prime minister, but, well, all of Canada's current prime ministers do blackface. Actually, that makes sense, come to think of it. All right, I see the logic now, Minister Blair. Canada has, of course, seen gun violence and mass shootings. No country is immune to these things. But they're exceedingly rare, statistical anomalies, and almost exclusively involve illegally acquired guns. The kind that seem to change hands irrespective of whatever half-baked gun control plan a government puts into place. Moreover, these people are never in the gun lobby whose MO is advocating for safe and legal gun ownership. The odd thing is that Minister Blair and his colleagues aren't actually interested in dealing with the extremism. They prefer to scapegoat guns and malign gun owners in the process. Canadian gun owners generally accept the regime of restrictions. Even Joe Biden's fantasy gun bills would seem very lax by Canadian standards, which makes it all the more egregious that the Liberals are hell-bent on vilifying a group who does nothing wrong by stating that the few violent extremists Canada does see are members of a group which has very legitimate grievances against this government. In lighter fare, the real estate market in Toronto is hopping right now, but don't expect to find a place with a nice master bedroom. Or, well, any master bedroom for that matter. The Toronto Region Real Estate Board has banned the use of the term master bedroom from real estate listings, now requiring listing agents to use, quote, primary bedroom. After a directive from the Real Estate Board's Diversity and Inclusion Task Force, which is apparently a thing. Now, this directive says that people associate the term master with slavery and or sexism, so the board is purging itself of what it calls offensive undertones. Alas, if master is deemed too offensive, what will Toronto's dominatrices do? They may have to soon reevaluate their language as well. Is nothing sacred? Anyway, when one-bedroom condos are selling for $600,000, I would argue that master bedroom isn't the uninclusive part. But what do I know? Back to you, Mark. Primary bedroom. What a splendidly flexible term that is. The secret of a happy marriage, ladies, is to have a primary bedroom... But let him uh, tiptoe off after midnight to the secondary bedroom with the fetching scullery maid up in the attic. Massa's not in the cold, cold massa bedroom anymore. You can't say master bedroom in Toronto because of the long legacy of Rosedale plantations. Oh, mammy! As Justin would say with the full Chiquita in his gusset, the highly specific American race paradigm is now being imposed on the entire Western world. As I observed almost a year ago, the only way to push back on the mass stupidity is for every putative buyer to say to the snotty realtor, oh, it doesn't have a master bedroom. Oh, sorry, look, it's very nice and it's... Just the location, but I was really looking for a place with a master bedroom. Uh, let me know if you ever have any of those. But we won't do that, will we? So the mass moronization will march on to new conquests. Masterpiece Theatre, MasterChef, MasterCard should be renamed Mammy Card, just for Justin, don't you think? The perfect, the perfect credit card for Canadian Liberals. Mammy Card! See you next week, Andrew. Mark Stein's Poem of the Week. 
For this weekend, as the Duke of Edinburgh is laid to rest, I thought we ought to find a memorial poem for a prince. And I rummaged around in my brain and couldn't think of any except for a fleeting fragment of a spectacularly bad poem, uh, which I put to one side. So I riffled through my bookcase and scoured the internet and still couldn't find anything except this spectacularly bad poem kept floating back. And eventually I thought, ah, to hell with it. Let's have the real stinker of a poem. Who knows? Maybe it would have given His Royal Highness a laugh. It's by William McGonagall, of course, who is often hailed as the worst poet in British history. As a poet, he suffered from two very basic defects. He was unable to scan. Couldn't scan for toffee unable to scan, and he had no flair for poetic language. The crummy scansion means he doesn't even work as a tumpty-tumpty-tumpty poet like, say, uh, Robert W. Service in uh, shooting of Dan McGrew mode because you keep tripping up rhythmically over extra syllables or missing syllables. Can't scan. And the lack of uh, poetic language, symbolism, uh, imagery, the poetic metaphor, uh, means it's like reading a rather dull newspaper report that happens to rhyme. A lot of the time, he's writing about uh, genuinely uh, tragic events, the, the Tay Bridge disaster, or great men, General Gordon at Khartoum. So the unintentional comedy is the mismatch between the subject and the style. In this instance, though, uh, the McGonagall style is applied to a not terribly great man, the youngest son of Queen Victoria, Prince Leopold, Duke of Albany. It was not his Royal Highness's fault that he was not great. He was afflicted uh, with haemophilia, and one day at his villa in Cannes in the south of France, he slipped and fell and died at the age of 30, having led a somewhat uneventful life. In that sense, he's the very opposite of Prince Philip. Nevertheless, uh, the Bard McGonagall was moved to write a very long poem about His Royal Highness. The first half is about his life. The second half is about his funeral. Uh, so we'll do the first half today. Written by William McGonagall in 1884, The Death of Prince Leopold. Alas, noble Prince Leopold, he is dead, who often has his luster shed, especially by singing for the benefit of Isha School, which proves he was a wise prince and no conceited fool. Methinks I see him on the platform singing the Sansa D, the generous-hearted Leopold, the good and the free, who was manly in his actions and beloved by his mother, and in all the family she hasn't got such another. He was of a delicate constitution all his life, and he was his mother's favourite and very kind to his wife. And he had also a particular liking for his child, and in his behaviour he was very mild. Oh, noble-hearted Leopold, most beautiful to see, who was wont to fill your audience's hearts with glee, with your charming songs and lectures against strong drink, Britain had nothing else to fear, as far as you could think. 
a wise prince you were, and well worthy of the name, and to write in praise of thee I cannot refrain, because you were ever ready to defend that which is right, both pleasing and righteous in God's eyesight. And for the loss of such a prince the people will mourn, but alas, unto them he can never more return, because sorrow never could revive the dead again. Therefore, to weep for him is all in vain. A poem from me to you, uh, after a fashion and eccentric scansion by William McGonagall, The Death of Prince Leopold. If you're whooping and cheering for more, we'll do the second half, an account of His Royal Highness's funeral uh, next week. And let me tell you, <laughs> that's, that's harder to read than a well-written poem because of its arrhythmic clunkiness. Uh, the Duke of Albany had a young daughter, Alice, whom our older Canadian listeners and our extremely old South African listeners uh, will recall as Princess Alice, Countess of Athlone. She was the vice-regal consort to the Governor-General in both Pretoria in the late 20s and in Ottawa during the Second World War. Princess Alice died in 1981, the last surviving grandchild of Queen Victoria, the first grandchild of the Queen's to die, had taken his leave 115 years earlier. Uh, she was at that time the oldest living princess of the blood. Uh, when her father died aged 30, her mother was pregnant with Princess Alice's brother, Charles, the uh, second Duke of Albany, as he was born. At a time when the British royal family was de-Germanicising, he was re-Germanicising, uh, having inherited the throne of Saxe-Coburg and Gotha. Overthrown at the end of the Great War, he then met Hitler in 1922, thought him obviously the coming chap, and eventually joined the Nazi party and became an SA Obergruppenführer. When he was captured at the end of the Second World War, Princess Alice and her husband, as Governor-General of Canada, flew to Germany to intercede with his American captors. They were not sympathetic. Uh, his ducal property was in the Soviet sector and so got confiscated by the communists and he died penniless. And his grandson is the current king of Sweden. That's a lot of turbulent history crammed into a couple of generations and there's not a whiff of it not a hint of it in Mr. McGonagall's poem about the short life of poor Prince Leopold. Mark Stein is breathing new life into death. The Mark Stein Club is proud to present a new weekly audio special, a serialization of Mark Stein's passing parade. Tune in every Saturday as Mark shares obituaries and appreciations for folks from Ronald Reagan and the Queen Mum to Ray Charles and the guy who invented Cool Whip, exclusively for members of the Mark Stein Club. Find out more by going to www.steinonline.com. Mark's mailbox is on the air. Veronica, one of our New Zealand Mark Stein Club members from Auckland, 
writes, apropos Thursday's Clubland Q&A, Hey, Mark, great show as always, though it sounded as if you had just finished training for a half marathon shortly before you began the broadcast. Kudos to you if that is the case. Uh, I was a bit winded as we went on air, but from considerably less impressive exertions. Uh, Veronica continues, I agree that all the woke stuff is mainly the new version of the old class marker in the way that schooling and clothes and accent used to be. Professor Higgins wanted to teach Eliza to speak proper English, not only to win his bet, but because a new posh accent might secure her a coveted job as a lady in a flower shop. Nowadays, one's accent, vocabulary and appearance doesn't matter nearly so much in securing employment as one's adherence to all the left-wing orthodoxes. The weird beard, Jack Dorsey of Twitter, is a good case in point. He looks like a hobo, and yet he runs a powerful social media platform that successfully silenced the President of the United States and perhaps tipped him out of office. Uh, Yes, that's one of the most significant social changes of the last six decades. Uh, Appearance actually does still matter, uh, Veronica, but uh, not in the way it used to. One of the reasons my old boss, Conrad Black, did not endear himself to his jury in Chicago is because he seemed uh, like a parody of a blue-collar guy's idea of a rich man. He had a languid patrician drawl. He wore a suit, uh, albeit uh, rather crumpled as the trial wore on. But the new mega-rich are cannier than that. And uh, looking like a hobo, as Veronica puts it, is one of the easiest ways to insulate yourself from that prejudice. How can Weird Beard Jack be a class enemy? He looks like he's been sleeping in a dumpster for a fortnight. Uh, You would think that that would be slightly too obvious a feint, even for the know-nothings of Generation Woke to fall for. But apparently not. He lives in a mega-mansion... He's rich beyond the dreams of almost anyone else on the planet. He's flown in to testify at these god-awful waste-of-time congressional hearings on the most lavish private jet. Uh, But he makes a point of uh, hooking his false beard over his ears and having his valet lower him into his malodorous hobo outfit before he gets chauffeured to the jet. For all we know, off camera, he's like Lord Grantham in Downton Abbey and spends an hour dressing for dinner every night. Uh, On the subject of the peerage, or uh, actually the baronetage, uh, Veronica continues... On the disappearance of the social conservatives, I wonder who the last one was. There haven't been any heard of round these parts in decades. Australia still has one or two, but they're fading fast. Perhaps it was the barrister, Mr Griffith Jones, in the Lady Chatterley's Lover obscenity case in 1960, who apparently was so unsophisticated that he didn't realise what D.H. Lawrence was on about when he referred to Mellors, the gamekeeper, having used Constance, Lady Chatterley, in the, quote, Italian way. He therefore didn't enlighten the jury. I love this. You never know uh, where uh, uh, where a, a missive from a uh, Mark Stein club member is going to go. And I didn't see this one coming. Uh, in the, quote, Italian way, 
he therefore didn't enlighten the jury, who probably would have been disgusted uh, and, uh, and lost the case. All the academics and bohemians of the time who were pushing Chatterley and who are surely the progenitors of the current wokesters knew very well what Lawrence had meant and were relieved that the jury remained in blissful ignorance. The social conservatives, naive and well-mannered, uh, were put firmly on the back foot and remain so to this day. Veronica is quite right there. If you're not sure what uh, the Italian way is, uh, well, it's uh, it, it, it gets confused with le vice anglais, the English vice, although that's something rather different, albeit focused in the same uh, general neighbourhood. Uh, and it's not at all to do with the French disease, <laughs> so-called, although excess of the Italian way might well lead to the French disease uh, eventually. Best to use a French tickler. Uh, I don't think a Dutch cap will work in that neck of the woods. Uh, how do we get onto this? The Italian way, la vis anglais, uh, French tickler, Dutch cap. Uh, oh, yeah, the Lady Chatterley case. Uh, the defence counsel were convinced before trial that that reference to the Italian way would do for them. But as Veronica points out, the Crown's prosecutor, Mervyn Griffith-Jones, couldn't quite bring himself to go there. He read out the bit about the Italian way, but didn't explain to the jury what it meant. And so a book hailed by the critics for its, quote, Anglo-Saxon bluntness about matters sexual skated uh, because of a clever use by D.H. Lawrence of a coy euphemism. Veronica adds, Please don't include Lady Chatterley as a tale for our time. No chance of that whatsoever, Veronica. Does anyone read D.H. Lawrence these days? I, uh, I haven't since my school days uh, where we were taught him by a trendy schoolmaster. Uh, I find him as risible and unreadable as William McGonagall and not half as much fun. Here is the bit where Mellors, the gamekeeper, is explaining to Lady Chatterley's papa, Sir Malcolm, that the old horny-handed ram has been tupping daddy's white ewe, uh, to go Shakespearean. Well, young man, and what about my daughter? Well, sir, and what about her? You've got a baby in her, all right. I have that honour, grinned Mellors. Honour, by God! Sir Malcolm gave a little squirting laugh and became scotch and lewd. Honour! How is the going, eh? Good, my boy, what? Good? I'll bet it was, ha-ha. My daughter, chip off the old block, what? I never went back on a good bit of effing myself. That scene's total crap, isn't it? That dialogue's complete rubbish. It couldn't be more ridiculous if Bertie Worcester were telling Sir Watkin Bassett that he'd knocked up Madeline. And yet D.H. Uh, Lawrence's prose is taken seriously. And as I said, the Chatterley case was an early example of a cause celeb where the faint-hearted defenders of tradition couldn't quite bring themselves to... Uh, as it were, thrust back. Thank you for that, Veronica. I do enjoy the surprises in Mark's mailbox. Keep up to date with the past on the 100 Years Ago Show with Mark Stein. A prime minister on trial, a president disdains the League of Nations, and a king of arms meets his end. 
It's April 1921. Troops near the village of Deresakari and killed. He was 35. The invaded Republic of Turkey and the Kingdom of Italy have announced that they have entered into a military agreement with an implicit threat to Greece. Should the Greeks prevail in the current war, Italy has vowed to prevent Athens annexing any Turkish territory. Republics come and these new republics go. The Albona Republic was proclaimed just a month ago, March 7th, by striking coal miners in the Italian town of Albona. It has now been put down by government troops at the behest of the mine owners. The government of Hungary has resigned after its supposedly weak response to the former Habsburg Emperor Karoy IV's attempt to regain his throne in Budapest. The Prime Minister, Paul Teleki, is out. It's not the best time to join the ranks of former Hungarian Prime Ministers. His predecessor, but too, Isfran Friedrich, has just gone on trial for the attempted murder of his predecessor, but nine, Ishvan Tisha. In the British Mandate of Palestine, a new emirate has been created, occupying all the land east of the River Jordan, which constitutes well over half of the mandatory territory. The new emirate is called Transjordan, and London has named as its emir a favoured prince, Abdullah, the son of the King of the Hejaz. by the Balfour Declaration. Two eminent proponents of a Jewish homeland have arrived in New York to promote their cause. One is Chaim Weizmann, a Russian-born British subject famed in England for his work on bacterial fermentation. The second is another scientist, Albert Einstein, 
a Swiss national known for his theory of relativity. A reception for the two men at the Metropolitan Opera House filled every seat, including the orchestra pit, and attracted hundreds more who were willing to stand. Ireland's revolutionary Republicans have claimed another eminent scalp, Sir Arthur Vickers, was a genealogist, heraldic expert and the former Ulster King of Arms on whose watch the Irish crown jewels were stolen in 1907. They have never been recovered and Sir Arthur was ruined and publicly disgraced by their loss. He has now been killed. About 30 men dragged him and Lady Vickers from their beds at Kilmorna House in County Kerry. They set the house alight, shot Sir Arthur outside in front of his wife and hung a placard around his neck denouncing him as an informant. He was 58. In the United States, President Harding has delivered his first message to Congress by appearing in person before a joint session. He declared that his administration would support the creation of a new treaty, separate from that of Versailles, to end the state of war between America and Germany and between America and the new states formed from the Austro-Hungarian Empire. He also said he was in favour of, quote, a non-political association of nations, but that in the existing League of Nations, world governing with its superpowers, this republic will have no part, unquote. has been established between the United States and Cuba. But don't try calling the island's largest bank, the Banco Nacional de Cuba. It has suspended operations following the collapse of the country's sugar export business. Do you know what an annular solar eclipse is? It occurs when the moon passes between the Earth and the sun and the moon's diameter appears to be smaller than the sun, so that when it's directly in front, it blocks out almost all the sun except for what looks like a yellow ring 
or annulus. This month's annular eclipse was visible from the north of Scotland, uh, the northwestern tip of Norway, and a few Russian islands in the Arctic Ocean. It has been a terrible month in the Gulf of Mexico. The U.S. cargo ship Colonel Bowie foundered and sank with the loss of 19 of the 22-man crew. 16 days after crashing into the Gulf, the wreckage of the U.S. Navy airship A5597 was found with no trace of the five-man flight crew. The great hotelier Lawrence Adlon never quite accepted the overthrow of the German monarchy, and notwithstanding the proclamation of the Republic, the bust of the Emperor has retained pride of place in the Adlon Hotel, the Berlin landmark that Kaiser Wilhelm always said was more luxurious than his own palace. When motoring through the Brandenburg Gate, Herr Adlon never used the central archway, which traditionally had been reserved for the royal family only. Such post-monarchical deference has now cost him his life. He was crossing the Paris Platz on foot and carelessly assumed the central carriageway would be as untravelled as it was when it was used strictly by the Kaiser. Instead, on what is now as busy as any other city street, Lorenz Adlon was hit by a motor car and killed. He was 71. Herr Adlon's empress is also dead. Augusta Victoria, consort of Wilhelm II, has been buried in Potsdam with full state honours accorded by the new German Republic. 300,000 people turned out for the funeral, but no official representatives of either the German or Prussian governments, and no grieving widower either. The former emperor was able to accompany his wife's body only from their place of exile in the Netherlands to the German frontier. Abdication, exile and the suicide of her son are said to have taken their toll on the Kaiserine. She was 62. And that's the way of the world, April 1921. How about we end today with the favourite song of the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh from when they were a young courting couple. There was a big logjam of American musicals waiting to come to London, but unable to do so because of the Second World War. And after victory, the first one to make it over there in April 1947 was Rogers and Hammerstein's landmark musical Oklahoma. And the opening night performance in April of 1947 was by royal command. The king and queen were there, and their daughters, Elizabeth and Margaret, and accompanying the royal party was, as he was then styled, Lieutenant Philip Mountbatten of the Royal Navy. This was the song that Princess Elizabeth and her dashing lieutenant took home with them, and that stayed with them in the few months before their wedding in November and then remained with them for the rest of their lives. This isn't a big show tune version uh, such as they would have uh, heard back in 1947, but it's a rather intimate interpretation that I happen to like very much uh, from a singer that I happen to like very much. 
This record's from a couple of years back by Miss Stacy Kent. Don't throw bouquets at me Don't please my folks too much Don't laugh at my jokes too much People will say we're in love Don't sigh and gaze at me Your sighs are so like mine Your eyes mustn't glow like mine People will say We're in love Don't start collecting things Give me my rose and my glove Sweetheart They're suspecting things People will say Stacey Kent. And that's her husband, Jim Tomlinson, doing those little sax fills between her vocal lines. People will say We're in Love by Richard Rogers and Oscar Hammerstein II, the R-Song song of the Queen, 
and the Duke of Edinburgh. That will do it for today's show. As you know, I've done the introduction to Mark Morano's new book, uh, Green Fraud, Why the Green New Deal is Worse Than You Think. You may have seen me and Mark on uh, the telly uh, last Friday on Fox News primetime. Uh, if you're getting the runaround from your local bookstore about green fraud, you can get it right here at the Stein Online bookstore, and I'll be honoured to autograph uh, my intro for you. Or you can get big-time savings, big-time savings, if you buy it in a special denialist double bill with my own book, A Disgrace to the Profession. That's one of our special offers at uh, the Stein Online bookstore, uh, A Fraud and a Disgrace. Do stick with us over the weekend for Mark Stein's Passing Parade, a brand new tale for our time, movies and music and more. Stay safe, stay free. Join us next time for another edition of The Mark Stein Show. The Mark Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. reserved.